I want to thank Hal and, and John and the session for this opportunity to preach today. I, was, I didn't really think about that and this until this morning, but I think this is the first time I've preached since I returned from Uganda in June. And the first time that I've preached with not through an interpreter since exactly one year ago today when I preached my last sermon at Westminster in Atlanta. So this is a great opportunity. appreciate the opportunity to stand before you today and bring God's Word. Uh, A new year brings new beginnings. Sometimes we think of it in terms of new opportunities, or and there's kind of an excitement around a, an, an optimism about what a new year might hold. Often people make New Year's resolutions. Sometimes those don't go so well. Um, I know there's a lot of excitement, though, for a lot of people. Uh, I know for me, and I think for our core group of our church plant, <clears throat> we think about what the next year could hold and how different things might look one year from now than they look now. That's very exciting. So there's this this opportunity, this optimism that a a new year brings. But I suspect that for some of you, you don't really have a sense of any fresh outlook. You don't, maybe you're having a hard time mustering any joy, any, any hope for the new year ahead. Just because the circumstances of life just seem to be the same as they were a month ago or a week ago or a year ago or a few days ago. Yes, some others of you here may really feel optimistic, may have a, a really um, optimistic and hopeful outlook, but maybe it's not based on the things that should be giving you a hopeful outlook. So, what is hope, and where does hope come from? You know, the way the Bible uses the term hope is quite different from the way we ordinarily use it in our language of our culture. Um, we might say, I hope it Snows tomorrow because I want a few more days of vacation from school before that starts back. Or we might say, I hope that Florida State beats Auburn because I'm tired of the SEC's dominance. That's just wishful thinking. Sorry to say for any of you that might be feeling that way. Or I hope this new year is going to be better than last year. But really, that, that sort of a use of the word hope is really just pretty much wishful thinking. The Romans 5 says this, We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Hope in the New Testament isn't wishful thinking. Hope in the New Testament is certainty about the reality of a relationship with God and what that means for me right now and what that means for me for eternity. That's the way this New Testament uses the term hope. It's certainty about what God is doing and is going to do and bring to completion about our standing and relationship with God now and for eternity. But in the midst of all the complexity and uncertainty of life, hope can be elusive, can't it? Well, that's the idea I want us to chase together this morning, this often elusive hope, and we'd like us to think about that a bit. And I want us to turn to the book of Habakkuk to do that. You might think what a strange place to look for hope. It's an obscure book in the Old Testament, probably one of the least known books of the Old Testament. What could Habakkuk, whoever or whatever that is, possibly have to say about hope? Hopefully we'll see together what it has to do with hope. Um, Because it's not a familiar book, I'm going to give you just a little bit of background real quick and then we'll jump into this. The first two chapters of the book 
are Habakkuk and God back and forth. Habakkuk asking God some really hard questions and God responding to Habakkuk with what really are some even harder answers. And then the chapter 3 is Habakkuk's response to this back and forth interaction. So this is all Habakkuk and God back and forth interacting with one another. And Habakkuk begins crying out to God in a context in which God's people, Judah, are in rebellion against God and have been in rebellion against God. And God has threatened judgment through the prophets. The people haven't responded. And finally, that judgment is just right there, close. But Habakkuk cries out to God and says, God, why aren't you doing anything? Why my people are in rebellion and they aren't repenting? Why are you just sitting back doing nothing? And God responds, I am doing something. What I'm doing is I'm bringing judgment on them. That wasn't the answer Habakkuk wanted when he said, Lord, why aren't you doing anything? So he responds again, well, God, that's not fair. You can't bring judgment, especially not through a country, a nation that's even more evil than Judah. How can that? That doesn't work. You can't do that way. And God says, well, yeah, yeah, I can do that because I'm God. And that's precisely what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring judgment on my people through the Babylonians. And so Habakkuk hears this. And he owns the reality, this hard reality. And then in chapter 3, a song springs out of that. That's why the last words of our text are, To the choir, master with stringed instruments. Because chapter 3 is a song. And this song owns the hard realities of what's coming, but also strikes very clear notes of hope that we're going to grab onto this morning by God's grace. It's a song that we need to learn to sing. So what is that song? What is it about? Let's read our text, Habakkuk chapter 3, just these last four verses. Habakkuk 3.16. Hear the word of God. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Amen. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we simply pray now that you, by your Holy Spirit, would enable us to understand your word and that you would apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The first words that Habakkuk says in our text here are, I hear. Habakkuk is saying, I hear you, Lord. I hear what you're saying. What he means when he says that is, is that he has embraced or, or owned this reality of what God has communicated to him, that he's taken it all in, that judgment is coming through the Babylonians. Habakkuk has had what we sometimes refer to as his reality check, or a little dose of reality. You know, sometimes it's hard for me to swallow the reality of 
the fact that I now have children that are age 16, 14, and 11. I just can't believe it's possible that my children are that age. Um, a couple of years ago, my, um, Andrea, my wife, gave me one of those photo, one of those um, digital picture frames. And I loaded a bunch of pictures of my children on there. And, he, and it used to sit on my desk in my office. And I would sit there and I would just see these pictures roll one after the other. And it would bring the reality home of the fact that, wow, my children aren't two years old or four years old or six years old anymore. And how fast life's going away. It was kind of a reality check for me. For Habakkuk here in our text, there is no shortage of reality. Habakkuk is in touch with what's going on around him. And what is that reality? Just again, rehearse it for you real quickly. The reality is that the most powerful military force on the face of the earth is about to come against their little tiny country of Judah. And there's nothing that they can do about it. In the past... And against these same kind of odds, God has risen up on behalf of His people and He has defeated the enemies of His people. And He has said, not this time. I'm allowing this. No, I'm not just allowing. I am sending them to devastate you. It's not going to be like before. God's people have made their bed and they're going to have to lay in it, as we sometimes say. Um, This is a situation of their own doing. God is sending them. But Habakkuk, in response to that, is not like the ostrich with his head in the sand. He's not in denial. Maybe if I just ignore this, it'll go away. Neither is he in sort of a Pollyanna idea of of everything's well, everything's going to be okay, everything's fine, when it's really not. He's heard the message, it's sunk in, it's had an impact on Habakkuk. And we see that in our text. What is the impact that it has had? He's afraid, he's anxious. He's deeply troubled. He's in anguish, and that anguish is even manifesting itself physically. You look look at verse 16. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver. Rottenness enters my bones, and my legs tremble beneath me. He is afraid, and it's affecting him physiologically. And that's a reality that we experience, right? I remember when I was um, started playing junior high basketball. I noticed. It took me a while to notice that put this two and two together, but I realized that on game days I always had these stomach issues. I won't go into any detail with that, but it used to, my stomach would just start churning, and I just didn't feel right. And it was always on days we had games. Oh, there was I was nervous, and it was affecting me. So that's a minor example of what's going on here. But you've experienced that, right? When you're under stress, you might begin to sweat or have dry mouth, or your heart begins to race. Any number of ways it might manifest itself. Habakkuk is not, again, he hasn't put his head in the sand like an an ostrich. He has owned the reality of what's going on. As I read that description, it reminded me of the description we have of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke, in his gospel account, Luke was a physician. He gives us the most detailed account and description of what was going on with Jesus physically. And what was going on in that context? Jesus was staring down the gates of hell, was he not? Jesus was looking into the abyss of what he was about to face and what he was about to endure for you and me. And it affected him. That onslaught was coming. The wrath and the torment that he was going to endure, and he was weighed down with it. In fact, Matthew adds that Jesus was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. It's not hyperbole, it's reality. 
And so, why did Jesus endure that? This is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's worth taking a moment. The same sort of reaction we see in Habakkuk, we see even more in Jesus as he embraces what it would take to save you and me, to have us for his people in whom he delights. That's the God that we have. That's the God that we are here to worship and serve today. Nevertheless, Habakkuk, he's experiencing this. He says, though, he's going to quietly wait, and he's entrusted himself to God. Verses 18 and 19 are probably the most well-known verses in this book, and for good reason. They're great, and we're going to come to them in a moment. But verses 16 and 17 show us that the hope that he communicates in verse 18 and 19 isn't just empty words. It isn't just smooth spiritual talk that's disconnected from the reality of life. You know, some of us are good at that. We can, we can say the right words and paste on the smiley face, disconnected from reality. Habakkuk is being genuine and he's authentic about life. This is real. He's not trying to put up a super spiritual front. This is real. And, and here's the thing for us. The reality of God is that sometimes He does allow or even send the Babylonians, as it were, to devastate us. In the face of that, Habakkuk is not plastering on a fake smile saying, praise the Lord, everything's okay. I'm just happy in Jesus. He's real about that reality. So the first point of application I want you to to think about with me is this. If if you can't get to that place of, of owning the reality of God, that's our first thing I want you to see this morning, owning the reality of God, There's really no real hope for you, right? Because you're basing your hope on other things. Things that are disconnected from the realities of what God is doing in you and in the world around you. And so you're basing your hope on something that's make-believe. Some of us, some of you aren't living in reality. You have a Pollyanna sort of outlook, denial, or you're like that ostrich with his head in the sand. Pretending it's not there, until we address that, there's no possibility that we can have real hope that gets beyond just superficial happiness in the circumstances of life. So that's the first part of this song that we need to learn to sing with Habakkuk. Owning the hard reality. What are the circumstances that are going to come out of that for Habakkuk? I just want to go a little bit further with this in verse 17. Verse 17 gives further description of the reality that they're going to experience, and that is that their land is going to be devastated by the ravages of war. That the scorched earth practices of the, of the Babylonians are coming, and as a result, he says, the figs, the grapes, the wine, the olives, gone. The cattle, the, the bread, the milk, the meat, gone. So, what is he addressing there with those two categories? The necessities of life, the bread, the meat, the milk, got to have that to live, the, the wine, the, the olives, the best the land can produce, more of the, kind of the, 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 the luxuries of life, all of it are, is going to be gone. But what Habakkuk is able to show us here is he's come to the point where he's no longer looking to those things. He's no longer hoping in those things. So, what about us? Let me ask you this. We're going to bring this down to, to our current context. I suspect there aren't many farmers here. Is anybody here? I'm just curious. Any people who make their living by farming? Any of you have an a f- orchard 
a fruit orchard. Okay, so, so we, don't, we don't live... Now, some of us out in Madison County do live more in that context, but there aren't many of the Madison County folks here today. But for us here in this sanctuary today at Redeemer, there aren't many of us who make our living through the sort of things that Habakkuk is talking about. So I want us to think about what it might look like for us. Think of it this way. Even though I lost my job, even though my bank account is empty, even though I just received a very discouraging medical diagnosis, even though I've completely depleted all my savings, even though I've lost the person that was closest to me in all the world, even though I've lost X percent of my retirement savings, even though my child is not walking with Jesus, even though I had to foreclose on my home, even though I didn't receive that promotion that I was hoping for and counting on, even though we were not able to have children, even though I didn't get into school that I hoped and dreamed I would, even though I didn't get the raise I was counting on, even though my fiancé broke off our engagement, I mean, the list could just go on and on, right? We have those things in our lives that have been disappointments, Grave disappointments. What do we do when we face that? In verse 17, the figs, grapes, olives, cattle are all as good as gone because the Babylonians are coming. Habakkuk knows it. That's the the barrel that he is staring down, that he's, he's looking into as he says these things. Ours is different, but the question is the same. Is there life for you and for me beyond those things? If any one of those things or all of those things are taken away, is there still life? And there can be. We can only find hope by entrusting ourselves completely and thoroughly to God. In spite of those circumstances, there's two ways in our text that I want to talk about as we finish out this passage today. Two ways according to our text. The first is rejoicing in the God of salvation. And secondly is depending on His strength. So having owned the reality, that's the first part of the song, the rest of the song is that we learn to rejoice in God and we learn to depend on His strength. So look at verse 18. The first word, verse 18, is yet. Nevertheless, even though all of that, bad description, in spite of that harsh reality that God's bringing, I will what? I will rejoice, he says. Habakkuk's, Interest of note is not just to endure, to survive, but to live, to thrive, to rejoice. He's not content to grumble and to grouse and to complain like I so often am. He rejoices. Why? Because he has real hope that's rooted in God. Where does it come from? How is it possible? How can there possibly be anything to rejoice in if you put yourself in the situation that Habakkuk's in. And, and by the way, the rest of the nation doesn't know this information. Habakkuk is the prophet. God has revealed this to him. And he knows that all this is about to happen that's weighing heavily on him. Yet he has hope. Why? Because he's forsaken those things in verse 17 as his hope. He's forsaken his idols. And instead he's living by faith in God alone. That's the only possible explanation for what he says here. Other than a complete disconnect from reality which we know is not the case by what we've seen so far. 
But look again carefully at verse 18. What does it say that Habakkuk rejoices in? It says he rejoices in the Lord. You're thinking, well, well, yeah, obviously, okay. But notice he says that he takes joy in the God of salvation. He doesn't say he takes joy in the salvation of God. There's a difference, right? He takes joy not in deliverance, but in the deliverer. Habakkuk takes joy in God here and now, right now. Before the the long-awaited deliverance comes, he's hoping in God now, the God of salvation. That's huge for us. He was talking about our lives here and now. That's what he's hoping in. His perspective is not just to sort of check out until I get to heaven and then everything can be living. No, he's taking hope in God now, having that sort of an outlook where there is hope. So, hope in God. Not just in the salvation of God. That's different. God Himself is our hope. Not some perceived benefit that He brings with Him. Hope is found as we come to the place where He is enough. Where Jesus Himself is enough. And that we are satisfied with Jesus. It's easy for me to say. I'm not, I, it could come across like I'm, I'm saying, well, just, just believe that. You'll be fine. This is hard. This is difficult, but take hope in Him. That's what verse 17 is all about. Do you want God or His benefits? Do you rejoice in the the figs, the grapes, the wine, the grain, the cattle? In other words, do you rejoice in the, the good job, the good pay, the dream house, the beautiful wife, the good health, the godly children? Or do you rejoice in God? Period. I'll... Or is the perspective, I'll stick with God if blank, fill in the blank. Or is it, I'm rejoicing in God, nothing else. There's my hope. See, because if it's the other way around, if that thing is taken away, then we're devastated, hope is gone, life ceases. So then, the question we've got to ask ourselves this morning is, what is it that really gives us joy? Think about that. I want you to ponder that, maybe Ponder it this afternoon when you have more time to process. But answer that question honestly. What is it that really brings you joy? What is it that you're looking to? And if that answer is something other than Jesus, there's your opportunity to repent. Repent of those other things. That's what the whole point of what God was doing with His people here, by the way, is. He wasn't just being mean to them. He wasn't just had enough. He'd had it up to here and He was going to do away with them. No, He is doing this to bring repentance and restoration to His people. And that's what the point of this is for us as well. What is there for me to repent of, to lay aside and look to Jesus and follow Him? You know, the, the Apostle Paul is a great example of this. I want to share you a few examples from his life. First, just a couple of verses. Paul says this in Philippians 1, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me, life is Christ. If I die and go to be with Him, that's even better. Philippians 4 says, I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In every, any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. He also says, for the sake of Christ, I am content with weakness, insult, hardship, persecution, and calamity. For when I am weak, then I am strong. 
The reason Paul can say those things is because his joy is in God. And because of that, try as they may, they could not stop Paul. I mean, read the New Testament accounts about Paul and you'll see this. I mean, what if they caught him preaching and threw him in prison? Well, he would just sing praise songs to God, share the gospel with the jailer and the other prisoners, and they would come to faith in Christ. That's what happens if you imprison Paul. What if you try to kill Paul in the New Testament? You see those passages. He just gets excited about the fact that he gets to go to heaven and be with Jesus, who he loves the most. What if you beat Paul to within an inch of his life? He'll just say something like this. This light and momentary affliction is producing in me a weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. Or maybe he'll just say, maybe he'll just go away rejoicing that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. A person like that, you can't do anything with them or to them. He rejoices in death, he rejoices in life, he rejoices in tribulation. You can't touch him because he knows who he belongs to. His joy is rooted in that relationship with God. It's all about Jesus finding his joy there. An illustration of this, a few years ago, my beloved uh, seminary professor, Dr. Knox Chamblin, diagnosed with leukemia. <clears throat> I remember very vividly getting um, one of his daughters posted a picture on Caring Bridge, and here's this picture of Dr. Chamlin, and, and he had you know, very advanced leukemia. He was undergoing uh, chemotherapy. He was in seclusion because he was in such a weakened state that he couldn't be chance of any being exposure to to any other germs, and here's this picture of Dr. Chamlin, and I can see it still today. He's sitting in his hospital bed with an IV going in to his arm. He's got his computer on his lap. He's talking on his phone. There's a Bible across his chest, probably the Greek or Hebrew text, and he's got a big smile on his face. Again, you can't do anything to someone like that because his hope was not in his health or in the fact that he was separated from the people he loves physically, his hope was in Jesus. And yet hope can't be taken away. So, repent of these things. Those, all those other things that might steal our joy. The reality of life in this broken world is that something could happen today or tomorrow or this week to take any of those things away that we listed earlier. Even if everything's going really great for you right now, and you're kind of having a hard time relating to what I'm talking about, all those things can be taken. You could receive a phone call today that you learned the information that just devastates all of that, right? That could happen today. I remember the one line from a song by Sarah Groves, a song called Open My Hands, and she says this, I am nodding an emphatic yes to all that you have for me nodding an emphatic yes to all that you have for me. Again, that sounds great. It sounds really pious and holy. But that's, if we can own that reality, then when that hard phone call comes, when that terrible thing happens, then God, we, we understand, God remains God. God is still for His people. God still loves me. He's still working out His plan. And nothing can be done to stop it. And that's the difference between devastation or hope when things don't turn out the way we dreamed they would. So if you ever struggle to believe that God really is for you, if you're honest, you have to admit sometimes you do. The one thing that I would say to you this morning is this. Look at the cross. God's joy in you 
to have you as his child sent Jesus to the cross. His love for you, his commitment to have you is so great that God sent his son to come and to live on this earth, to subject himself to all the weakness and frailty and pain and struggle of this life, and then to be tortured and beaten and crucified on our behalf, in our place, then to rise victorious on the third day, victorious over sin and death. If we own that and believe that and take that with us, that gospel joy will mark us in our perspective, in our hope that we have. So we entrust ourselves to God alone. We trust in the God of our salvation. And finally, briefly, we depend on the strength of God. This is verse 19. When we've learned to rejoice in God, then we need also the resources to move ahead in that joy because life is hard and it's unrelenting and you maybe get past one hurdle then there's another hurdle that hits you next. Sometimes it feels like just one thing after another happens. But what does he say in verse 19? God the Lord is what? My strength. God is my strength. I take hope in Him but then He is my strength. He's the one through whom I can live this life. And again, this is where our you know, doctrine of the sovereignty of God can really serve us well. Not as some sterile academic bit of information, but as a real personal relationship with a God who is in control of everything. He is mighty and powerful, and nothing can stop Him or His plan for His people. We're weak, but He's strong. He's powerful. He's mighty. He has the strength we lack, and that strength is ours as we live by faith. One concern briefly that I would just voice today is there are some of you here, some of, I'd assume many of you here are very capable. You're, you're strong, you're smart, you've done well for yourself. For some of you, things seem to come easily. Beware, because there's a danger in those situations that you won't be able to embrace dependence on God. And there's no real hope when we substitute human strength and effort for the power of God and the gospel. So trust Him and His strength. Trust Him and His strength. And by the way, just a reminder, faith has no power in and of itself, right? Faith is only as powerful as the object of that faith. So if we're trusting in Jesus, the point is not my trust, because I may have weak faith, I may have that, that mustard seed size, little tiny faith, the faith that says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. But if our faith is in God, the God who is mighty and powerful, then He is able, in spite of the weakness or smallness, if that's a word, of our faith. We depend on Him. How do you know if you're depending on Him? you to think about, am I really trusting in Him? Am I really depending on His strength, not my own? I'll tell you a few things that will be maybe indicators. Prayer is an indicator. If you're prayerless, prayerless, then you're not expressing your dependence on God, right? Something to think about. If you are really anxious and churned up all the time about stuff going on in your life, like I am, that's an indicator, right? That maybe you're not depending on His strength, but your own. If you're always desperately trying to just over-engineer every detail of your life, and your own strength, and your own smarts, your own ability, maybe that could be an indicator. 
Then towards the end, he goes into this part about the deer. What does a deer on the high places have to do with this? Why does he use that imagery? Here's the point. Habakkuk and his people are entering into a dark time, a valley, valley of the shadow of death, if you will. And what Habakkuk's hope is that by God's strength, they're going to reach the high places. Yes, it's going to be a dark valley, but God's going to bring them to the high places by His strength, and they will walk with those feet that are sure and firm. As I trust God, God enables me not just to survive, but to thrive, to reach the high places. Not the high places in the eyes of the world. Not what the world views as the high places, right? The high places of life in Christ. Fulfillment and satisfaction in Him. Joy to be a part of the work that He's doing, His kingdom work. You know, being connected with God's people and involved in the mission of the church. That's the picture of the high places we get in Scripture. Jesus' idea of the high places was humility and serving and loving. That whole idea of the least is the greatest. Paul's idea of the high places was mission or nothing, right? I'm, gonna, I'm going to preach the gospel, come what may. So, the picture that Habakkuk paints for us is life is hard. The song we've got to learn to sing is life, yeah, it's hard, but God hasn't left us to our circumstances. He hasn't abandoned us to that struggle on our own, to walk through the valleys on our own. He's with us. He strengthens us. And His expectation of us is that we're going to advance to the high places with Him. And there's real hope there for us, is there not, today? Hope for God's people. And this has been intense, and Habakkuk's book, it's, inten- it's an intense book, but I think it's important for us to think through how does one have real hope, lasting hope, when staring down the barrel of the hard circumstances of life, real life, real hardship, real pain. Well, the way we do that is with a real gospel, with the real Jesus, trusting in Him, looking to Him. Are you living in that reality today? Where is your joy? What are you depending on? And let me just say this, if you're here today and you're unclear or unsure about that, there's no reason to continue in a state of hopeless uncertainty. That certainty is yours as quickly as it is to to put your trust in Jesus, to repent of the other things you're relying on and trust Him. And, And I would encourage you, if that's where you are today, don't leave here today without determining to talk to someone. And the elders of this church will be willing to talk with you. Hal or John or myself be willing to talk with you about that. Hope in Him, not in the fact that it's a new year. Hope in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the encouragement that this song brings to us in the midst of circumstances that could not be worse by human analysis for Habakkuk. There is hope in Jesus. We trust in you. Help us in our lack of trust. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The elders who are helping with communion could come forward, please.